Welcome to Designing for Students, the podcast that explores the intersection of design and higher education. I'm Rich West, a freelance user experience consultant specialising in content. Over 20 years, I've worked in a number of higher education institutions, as well as government and the private sector. And I'm Rich Krauss. I'm the Director of Design at Content Design London and a higher education specialist. Designing for Students is a limited podcast series where you'll get to hear voices from around the world. From perspectives on leadership to hands-on skills, our goal is to inspire you to create experiences that help students succeed. So get ready to deep dive into the world of designing for students. We're brand new, so subscribe now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Joining us today is Dr. Letitia Osborne. Letitia is a Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, or DEI, consultant for the Diversity Trust. It's great you could join us today. I'm so glad to be with Rich Squared. That's what I'm calling you both, so that's pretty fun for me. <laughs> it's funny in London, so I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Before we get stuck in, uh, it would be great to learn a little bit more about you and what you do. I predominantly spend my time working with clients in a diversity, equity and inclusion capacity. No two dates are the same. I know a lot of people say that about their jobs. Mine genuinely is like that. I work with clients across audits, assessments, coaching, training, all sorts. So we really work towards any goals that clients have to make sure they're as inclusive as possible, which of course looks completely different depending on where you work and what your goals are. It'd be really great to give an example of when you've been working with a client, what that looks like on the ground, what you kind of yeah. do. I have uh, some really amazing clients. Some of my favorite work is to look at where the client is at the moment. And uh, the best clients are the most honest uh, with themselves. I've had clients come and say, do you know what? We've done nothing. I don't know what to do next. <laughs> I am frightened. There's a lot going on. I'm overwhelmed. And so taking them on that journey from the very beginning to look at what does inclusion look like for you? How can it help you and how can it help staff? What do staff need? And I think particularly when we're talking about higher education, often the answer is already there with students. They know exactly what they want. They've made asks or they have those asks in mind. And so taking you through that journey of how to bring in, whether it be staff or students or both, on your journey to make sure that truly is impacting the people you say it should be. And I've got loads of examples to come with some of the questions I'll give a bit more specific as we go through. I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be amazing because this is an area that's really important to universities. When you look at kind of the progression of the language, there's widening participation, diversity, equity, inclusion, and now belonging. I just want to give a warning. My, my thesis was about identity and belonging. So you're going to have to stop me when it comes to talking about belonging, because that's a whole huge area I love talking about. It. I got into it by a book uh, from the Stanford Design School. And then we're talking okay. about the role of belonging and othering and affecting educational attainment. Oh, man. And it's that book by Susie Wise that inspired this podcast. With that in mind, how do DEI efforts improve the student experience and student outcomes? You, you gave me a very nice segue, so thank you for that. There's so much research out there in higher education itself just to look at student attainment and that sense of belonging and that sense of identity, which is a complicated thing because each individual person, including us, right, um, have our own sense of identity, who we think we are. I can tell you a whole host of different things that make me me, but if any part of that identity you disagree with or you say, no, you're not actually part of that, 
that has a whole host of issues. Or if it comes from a lecturer, someone pastoral care or student services. So each individual student has a, a mountain to climb with that. But on top of that, we see representation differences. For example, in our more elite institutions in the UK, if that's a word that people subscribe to, but an elite and prestigious is how it's described in the literature, you have a huge underrepresentation, or other people would say systematic exclusion of black students, for instance. So even if you attend that and you get there and there's lots of people on YouTube or TikTok doing vlogs just to normalize that and to show people we are here, you have to have a really huge piece of identity work where people are saying, you're not ex-student, for example, you're not an Oxford student, you don't look like a Cambridge student, right? And so you're here to get your degree, but you're having to contend with all of these different things. So what the research shows us, if you don't have a sense of identity and belonging on your course, for example, with the people who you say you see the most, that has a massive impact on your educational uh, attainment, that we see those direct correlations. And so there's a lot to support that. And I think universities are understanding that, as you said, Rich, about what can we do then? How do our efforts link with belonging? Because that's really where the, the research is showing us. But it's not as simple for everybody. I think a lot of the time universities are going, everybody's coming here and everyone's a student. But that's not always everybody's experience when they arrive. So we see a lot of the efforts ushering people through the door. Please come here. We're diverse. We want you. But a lot of people, including the students in my research said, yeah, everybody invited us, but nobody prepared for our arrival. So it's like we're saying, Rich, come to my house for a dinner party, but I haven't asked you if you eat meat. I haven't asked you any dietary requirement. You'd be like, what's going on? Why did you invite me here? So it was that feeling of they understood that in today's climate, they were a commodity, right? That universities wanted yeah. to have diverse people in their prospectuses on the website and all of that stuff. But it was a very different story when they arrived. Can you give us examples of where universities have been successful in building that sense of belonging and breaking down mm, barriers? That's a great question. So some of the work that I did uh, when I was doing my PhD at the University of Bath, uh, I think they were really receptive to uh, students' comments. So, for example, Bath had a huge international student population. Mm -hmm. And they were great when it came to the campus supermarket. They were great at having an Asian section. It wasn't just an aisle. It was massive, right? That was an amazing thing for international students to come and say, wow, I can get all of the things that I miss about home, which we know home, again, has a lot to do with our identity, food, music, language, that kind of stuff really does make a difference. But black students were saying, that's amazing. Could we have something? like that yeah. right would that would be amazing because in the wider city of bath there isn't that place they would have to travel 20 30 minutes to go to bristol and find that the university responded really well and, and started that and had a section for african caribbean products both hair and food which makes a difference that you see okay the university is not only just walking the walk they genuinely do have something it may not be perfect but they have something prepared for our arrival on that open day that doesn't lie, right? Parents and students are going, oh, it's there. It's not just being talked about. It's not just being promoted. It's actually there. I can see it for myself. I can touch it for myself. And seeing and believing, I think, in a lot of this. And so I think that's one example where you could see it wasn't just talk. Action started to happen. That's a yeah. fantastic example as well. It's so, yeah, I, I guess, sort of thing that probably people wouldn't think about until someone said to them, well, you know, that actually really like this in stock. And I think that was the beauty in it of it's okay for us not to know everything, 
And I say this to my clients from all sectors, that there's this anxiety. And I think higher education institutions have this, but I think most of my clients have this. There's an anxiety and it comes from what I usually say is a really strong will and desire to do right and to get it right. And that's overwhelming. Then there's the other side of, I don't quite know what to do. I want to do it so badly and I want this to be right. And I want people to see my intention, my desire, all of these things, but I don't quite know. And so I think those two forces sometimes butt heads. And so nothing happens because we're so worried of getting it wrong, but we desperately want to be right. And so I think when it came to that example, it was about saying doing something is better than doing nothing, right? So don't let your fear of not being perfect not allow you to just do good enough. It was a good enough first step. And so I think in a lot of the work I do with my clients is saying, let's just go for good enough. And then we can get to perfect. We can worry about that down the line. And this is something I'm guilty of myself. So it's kind of a read for me. I need to remember it's about getting good enough first because most people can see that you're at least making the effort that they're being seen at least. Even if it wasn't a whole aisle dedicated, right? It was something you saw us, you heard us, and you translated that into action. And I think students, for the most part, are looking for action. They don't want any more words. They're tired of telling. They want to be shown. What's lovely about what you just described is that it's okay to make a start. It doesn't need to be perfect. What I'd be really interested in is once you've made that first step as an institution, where do you go next? This is a lovely question. I think we're probably one of the most important ones, right? Where's what's step two? Because we find so much of the attention is on step one. But keep that example of Bath. What happens when you make that step one that isn't perfect, but it's, it's good enough, is that you get feedback, right? That you don't even have to go asking anymore. The parents at open days are going, hey, I noticed that. Could you make it more? What about this? What about that product? Did you think about this? So you actually start to solicit things without even trying. And so I think the step two is building on what you have in step one. You've got something to show. People are commenting, giving you their feedback, whether you like it or not a lot of the time. And so I think it's about building off that and going, okay, we've started with this. We've got this many products. Let's listen to people when they say another important product is this. Right. If there are enough people saying that, let's go with that. It starts to grow on its own as an organic process because people have seen you've at least made a start. I feel free now to tell you. Whereas if step one wasn't there at all, it's a big ask for me to, to start to question why you don't have it in the first place. But if you have it, I can now say, here's how to make it better. Here's how to make it bigger. These are the products I would expect to see. Here's the things that are important. So for example, if we keep using the University of Bath for now, the next step was then to think about the fact that for black and mixed students, they also didn't have a, a hairdresser who could do their hair, right? Or a barber that could do their hair in the city. So that's now your step two, right? That you've done the step one, you've got a placeholder that can keep growing, that, that doesn't stop. But now you have another place where people think, oh, you see us. Let me tell you about, I don't have a hairdresser here, right? So that then starts to allow people to feel free that you are receptive to that conversation. And it happens outside of higher ed as well. You'd be surprised a lot of the times with my clients, for example, I will come in for one thing and people go, wow, you're here. Let me just tell you about this. Because now the door's open. Now there's someone who I can talk to who she didn't exist before. So I'm here for half a day to do this. And that usually means I come back the next time and there's more things. So things just start to happen. You start to show there's a culture of inclusivity. 
there are other things. There'll be other groups. It won't just be black students. There'll be other groups of students who say, hey, okay, we saw some change here. Can we start to ask about our stuff now? Is there someone going to listen to us, right? So you start to show, this is not to put in a perspective. This is really for me to show that the outcome is going to be different for you this time. And so that step two comes often quite easily. It's just getting over the anxiety of step one. What's really interesting is the things you're speaking about, they're just really human things. And it's not that complex to solve. It's food, somewhere to have my hair cut. That is such a human thing, but often when we're thinking about diversity and equity inclusion, that kind of gets lost, that human side. It's all, oh, about, all about policies and processes and working groups. That's what design is about. It's the human Absolutely. side. Let's just stock some food. Let's find a hairdresser. Definitely. I'm sometimes a bit reticent to give examples because I think other universities go, that's not us. You didn't say us. I like to use the bath example because it's so common, right? Whenever I use that for clients, no one can argue with that, right? It's so human. The ability to be seen, the ability to be heard and to be recognized, it's such a human thing. I haven't had one person go, who cares? People go, oh, wow. If you can't get something as basic as the food you like, I can see how that would weigh on you. I can see how that would give you, you don't belong here, that we haven't thought about you, that we haven't prepared. So most people can see that whether they've had that experience or not. And I really like it because as you said, it's such a humanizing thing. We can all understand how that must feel, right? And to have to pull that out to other people. And so I think we have that kind of culture issue in the UK where there are conversations about diversifying student populations, but there isn't that second piece, which is, and how do we prepare for that reality? What do we need to do in order to make people feel welcome here? Because I think there's uh, a school of thought of, you should just get on with it, right? We've invited you here, just come and get on with it. But that's not something that's going to impact positively on educational attainment. It just simply isn't. You have to give people a sense that they belong here. We wanted you to come here. We've invited you to come here. So the least we can do is find some food that you like. I think it would be really helpful for the listeners to give a definition of what belonging is. To me, there's identity and belonging for me are two sides of the same coin, right? We speak about them in different ways, but they are similar. For me, the easiest way I can eat make them distinct is identity is who I see myself as, right? I see myself as a woman. I see myself as a black woman. That's who I see myself as. I think belonging is in part about who you see yourself as, but who recognizes you as one of us, yeah. right? For example, if I'm walking down the street and I run into a group of women, if they recognize me as one of them, I feel a sense of belonging with that group. Right. So in general, we're talking about higher education. The student group is what most people want to belong to. I want to feel like a student of this university. What happens for some students is they realize that the other parts of their identity make them feel they're excluded. So you're not just a student. You're a black student. You're a gay student. Right. You're an international student. You're not just student by default. And so what we see when it comes to sense of belonging in higher education is that there are certain groups who can just be a student and the other parts of them don't matter, right? They're just a student, but everybody else is saying, well, it's not that simple for, for me. 
when I come here, I'm not made to feel like I can just be part of the student group. I'm not recognized as just a student through various experiences, right? So some of those examples would be from my own research. One of the students was talking about the fact that all of the students in his student accommodations, it was like 100 students, would go and get the shop from the local Sainsbury's all the time. So it'd be packed, right? Sunday, just before closing, classic, right? Everybody's running to go and get their stuff. And he would go with his flat of seven, right? Including himself. And he was the only person, so we're talking hundreds of students, his flat of seven are part of that, who, as he left the Sainsbury's, would be asked to show his receipt. He was the only one consistently, right? And so he spoke about how being a black student was different than just being a student. He was the only one singled out. He didn't have the luxury of just going, I'm like everybody else, because he wasn't treated like everybody else. And that was a continuous thing week on week for four years. So if you imagine the damage that does to you in terms of your own cognitive ability to process the very blatant racism, but also that everybody else just was like, well, it is what it is. You can't just go, well, I'm just a student here. It doesn't really matter. So he wasn't able to have that experience. He understood that he'd be viewed differently and the ways that he responded to that type of racism would also have an impact on him. If he became angry, people would try to calm him down rather than say, maybe this is a, a correct response to something that's really debilitating and awful. Uh, and so that's what we mean when we talk about that sense of belonging, of understanding that you're one of us and being treated accordingly, right? And so yeah. there is a lot of different groups who are experiencing that, as you said, othering as a part of not feeling like they're one of us. They're not being brought into that group at all. So that was a very long-winded uh, definition of identity versus belonging. It's really interesting when you talk in those terms and what it feels like to belong and the impact that can have on you as an individual to be othered. And then we get into this kind of space where it's affecting educational attainment. And it comes down to recognizing that this is going on all around you and you may not even be aware of it. So I guess the question is, how can colleagues at universities be more aware of moments of othering? How do you recognize them, address them, and make sure that they don't happen? Great question. So oh, this is a really good and complicated question, which is my favorite type of question. What I will say is, from my experience, both doing my PhD, but also as a consultant, I've worked with lots of different universities. And the thing that I've learned when it comes to experiences of othering, whether that be homophobia, racism, transphobia, ableism, etc., is the best starting point, and it's going to sound weird, roll with me on this, is to assume it's happening. Yeah. Which is not like a hot take, right? Mm. Not like, <laughs> wow. But I think so many universities' responses well, we don't have that happen here. But if you started from a place of, we'll probably have that happen here, it'd be so much easier because I think there's a lot of institutional and not just higher education institutions, but you know any organization, there's a lot of defensiveness of that's not what happens here, but it happens in society, right? So why would you be a special hub? If you start from a position of, I imagine that if it can happen elsewhere, it can happen here, 
it's a lot easier for you to take certain steps. You will start to seek those experiences. You will start to listen in a way that you wouldn't if you started from a defensive place of we don't have that here. No one's formally reported it, for example. Just because no one's formally reported it doesn't mean it's not happening. And so if you start from that place of formal reporting is one way for us to get an idea, but there are lots of things that individual and groups of students let go of and they don't report, that's more realistic. So if you start from that point, you will most likely be listening and actively seeking that knowledge. What's happening here? What type of thing are we struggling with? What would be helpful, right? So if you have that and you're already listening and you're already plugged in, often the solution isn't too difficult. It's just whether you're brave enough to do it. So, for example, I've had students across different institutions say, why don't universities have a standard training that happens on a freshest week? Why don't they do? And people ask me this, right? Usually they're frustrated. They say, well, why don't they just do that? That seems obvious to me. And universities are trying to balance lots of different students. Some students would welcome that. Some students would say, this is brainwashing and I don't have to be told how to act and what to say. And so there's a lot of stuff for universities to be balancing, but it may not be as simple as we're just going to do a training, but it could be as simple as saying that these are the behavioral expectations that we have. You can act how you want to, as long as you're not stepping into this territory. And a lot of students said they felt that universities were afraid, the potential backlash that some students would say, this is woke culture in inverted commas, going crazy and I don't have to be censored and this type of thing. But what students were saying is you have to take a stand at some point. It doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be a code of conduct. It doesn't have to be a policy. As you said, Rich, a lot of it goes into policy talking. It doesn't have to be like that. But it can be saying we're not going to tolerate these things mm. in any yeah. way, in any shape, in any form. These are the things we expect from you to treat people with respect and dignity, to understand that everybody coming from a different background, a different perspective, even if they're the exact same racial ethnic background as you, they could come from a completely different place. So these types of conversations are what students want so that they are not tasked with having to educate students on their humanity. Right. That's what we've been talking about, that this is coming down to being a human being. And often students are saying, I'm having to educate other students on why I'm a human, too. And I don't want to do that on my first week of uni. I want to go to the club. Yeah. I want to enjoy myself. I want to get to know people. I don't want to be tasked with such a heavy burden in the beginning of my student career. You talked to us right at the beginning about organizations coming to you and saying that they're frightened and overwhelmed and this is their starting point and actually that's really helpful to be that honest and i guess that's the insidious flip side of we're really nervous about treading on anyone's toes or getting an article in the daily mail so we're just going to do nothing and it's missing that responsibility they have of you know you are building an environment for all these people to be in and so yeah. you need to take responsibility for what that environment looks like and how people behave in it absolutely i'm working on a piece now and it it was the end of my PhD where I wanted to battle exactly that, where I wanted to make sure that my research wasn't being used to show that the work was done. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think a lot of the time, if you are commissioned or if you are funded to do a piece of work on any group, LGBTQ+, uh, Black and mixed, Asian, 
minority ethnic, disabled students, any form of underrepresented or systematically excluded group, universities sometimes fall into the trap of going, we've done it. That's it. Look, she's doing it. They're doing it. He's doing it. This is being done. We've done the work. We can pat ourselves on the back. Thank you very much. We have that one person or two people doing that piece of work. And so what I wanted to do was avoid that by saying, okay, I've done this piece of work, but more importantly, I want to feed it back to you to see what you think can be done differently. Because a lot of the time, a PhD like mine or a research project of any kind on those groups often comes with, please write us some recommendations. But then the recommendations don't get done, my friend. And so what I wanted to do is say, no, I'm not going to write you recommendations. You know this university better than me. You know the infrastructure better than me. You tell me what's feasible, what's realistic. Based on what you've been shown, I wrote a really short report summarizing my key findings. I said, this is roughly what students are going through. You tell me now what you think is going to happen. And so the piece I'm writing is about that response, which I'm calling institutional anxiety. That part of, this is awful. This is terrible. I'm saddened and I'm shocked, but I don't exactly know what we can do because of these four reasons. Usually it was, I don't have the power to do that. I don't know what to do. We don't have enough data, right? Or I don't know how this is going to be received. And each of those four things in my mind are, are an institutional anxiety. Because just as you said, at some point, something has to be done. Otherwise, we're just doing research for research's sake. If we found the issues, students aren't going to go, so what? You, what's the solution? Great, you've done the research. Amazing. We love that. But that's not where the work ends. That's where the work begins. And I think a lot of the time, institutions can fall into the trap at times of, we've done that work. We asked the person to do that research project. We funded that piece of work. We did that. But that's the beginning, and I think it gets forgotten or it gets shelved and the recommendations are there for people to read. You look a year ahead and none of these were implemented. So what's happening now? And so I think we need more examples of that bit of what happened next? What happened after that person finished that piece of work? What you're advocating is very different. It's hands-on. You've got to face the problem and you've actually got to make some changes to the way the university this perfect microcosm of society functions it is perfect i think yes <laughs> you've got you've got to do the hard work and i love that, yeah. that kind of idea that it is hard work because i think it's too easy to turn something into a policy that sits somewhere yeah. and occasionally when that, that policies were not followed then something happens yeah but it shows the active nature of doing this work. Do you know what was also interesting, Rich Squared? We're talking about humanness of, of students, right? But when I was doing that last study of my PhD and I was doing one-to-one -one interviews with senior managers, in that moment, I thought, oh, these are the top brass, you know, that this is going to be a big conversation and there's so much power in the room and all of my student participants were like, yeah, come on, you can do this. And then I got in the Zoom room, this was over the pandemic, so I got in the Zoom room with each senior manager one-on-one, -on -one, and I just thought, oh, they're also just humans trying to figure out what to do. And nobody was the big bad wolf analogy. You know, you kind of have this idea of a Bond villain who spins around with a cat on their lap, and they have this huge chair. But actually, they're just people trying to figure out what to do at the time in the midst of a pandemic, which is 
a whole other story. But there wasn't this sense of we don't care, which when I was speaking to students saying, I'm going to bring this to the senior managers. What do you want me to, you know, to say? What kind of things do you want me to convey? In their minds, they were saying, why don't you care about this? Why don't you care enough to make these changes? Why don't you listen? And when I was in front of them, I was like, oh, this isn't a lack of care. This is a, I don't know what to do for the best situation, mm. which can absolutely look like a lack of care. And it's important that they understand that's how it feels to students, which is one of my main messages, that the freeze technique looks like a lack of care, looks mm. like a dismissal of their feelings, looks like that, which of course they responded on that's not what it is. But it's the human side on both sides that nobody wants to be first and nobody wants to be wrong. And I think that is the problem uh, that higher education has in general. No one wants to be wrong and no one wants to be first. And so there is this sticky bit where everyone's waiting for someone else to make the move, that they can also make the move. And so it's a group of people who are feeling that they don't know enough. They're not necessarily well-versed in it enough to make this decision. And so as a collective, they don't feel they have enough knowledge or power or understanding or a combination to make these moves. And so I'm looking back at them thinking, students aren't going to believe this, that this, mm. there isn't a big bad wolf who doesn't care. And I don't know if that's kind of better or worse. It's yeah. better in that it's just humans being human, mm. but it's worse because now you can't be like, that was the person I wanted to blame. It, it didn't kind of have that feeling. Yeah, I was right. Or the students were right. They just don't care about it. It was more that we care so much. We don't know where to begin and we don't want to put a foot wrong because this is potentially that Daily Mail article or worse viral stuff on social media. And we just don't want to be wrong. And so there was just this breeze. You've touched on how institutions are thinking and how they're behaving. It feels like there's an element of the institutions thinking that they're at a neutral state. They are doing nothing currently. And if they did something, that would be them having to intervene and it would be a change. And is there part of it that there's this mind shift of you are already making all these decisions. You've decided a, a supplier for your shop and you've decided how welcome it's going to work. These have already been active decisions that you are making. Yeah. You're not neutral in this. You're doing this already. Man, you said that perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That there is an assumed neutrality and an assumed innocence, right? That mm. we aren't doing anything bad, but you're not doing anything good too. Yeah. And so for the students, they're going, okay, you're not making it worse necessarily, but it is pretty bad right now. So doing nothing is worse actually than doing something and being wrong. But there was just this feeling in, in those spaces when I was doing those interviews that it's better that we do nothing. Silence can't be misquoted. That type of idea of if we do nothing, yes, students will be mad. Yes, they'll think we don't care, but we do. We just are so desperate to get this right. And, and I think it's also very academic. It's so cerebral that it's like, I need to think about this and process and figure out. And, and the students are going, just jump, just jump. It doesn't matter. Make a move. It might be yeah. messy and not the way you wanted, but we just want you to jump at this point. So there was absolutely this, this disconnect for students saying, you think that your silence is neutral, but we're saying your silence is complicity. And the institution saying, we think our silence is neutral. We think it's better for us to really be cerebral and think about this. And for most of my conversation, I was saying, you've run out of time. 
I know you want more time, but the clock had already stopped. Before you even started to think about this, you had run out of time. You're late. And I think there was this uh, ability that I had as a consultant to, to say, as, as a whole higher education moves slower than other organizations or other industries. And so what you think is the beginning of your journey is really late if we look at other other facets right of different industries you're really slow and so students have reached that maximum capacity of empathy and understanding now because they're seeing everybody else particularly those who are on placement they're seeing oh in the real world they've already done this and done all the stuff and made all these changes but we're not even getting a little shred of what they're getting and so there is this need to understand that Yes, things move at a different pace in higher education, but almost always it's slower than, our, than everybody else. And so students just don't have any more to give. They want it now. They're, they're tired of waiting. They don't want any more time to pass where they're not seeing these changes. So absolutely, there's a dif- disconnect between what students perceive and what institutions perceive fully. We've talked about belonging and how othering happens. We've talked about that sometimes universities are frozen. My question is, if you can help the organization, and that is people get past that, recognize that, how do you transform a culture in a larger way? How do you get past things like institutional anxiety? That's a very good question. I can speak to it more generally outside of higher ed, but I'll try and bring it back in I have had sessions where people have said literally nothing because of that feeling of I'd rather say nothing than get this wrong or I'd rather say nothing than offend somebody and so in those spaces for me the best way to be able to tackle some of that is to first name it because nobody wants to say I'm afraid right maybe one or two people will say I'm afraid and I don't want to get this wrong and when those people are in my sessions they are absolutely my favorite Because naming the thing makes it smaller. So in my sessions, I quite literally, and if anyone who's listening doesn't believe it, book me and I'll show you. I quite literally say, this is the place to get it wrong. I am not interested in you getting it right. I am not interested in you trying to parrot things that you've read or that you've heard or you've listened to. If you don't know the word, you don't know it. And that's okay. I don't need you to get it perfect. I don't need you to think that you have to have read five books to be in this session. The whole point and why I'm here is that this is the dry run. This is the practice that we very rarely get in life where you get a place where you can just get it wrong and try and fail and try again. And so that's the kind of approach that I have. And so in my feeding back my research to the senior managers, that was my takeaway at the end was I'm promising you, students would rather you try and fail than not try at all because this is what it looks like to them. It looks like an instance of racism. It looks like an instance of homophobia or transphobia, of ableism, of sexism and misogyny. That's what it's saying to them. Even if that's not where you're coming from, the lack of action looks deliberate. And so it would genuinely benefit you to jump and fail than to just keep going here and just just keep swimming because students, parents, stakeholders are not seeing that this is just keep swimming. This looks like inaction, deliberate, you know, forced inaction that is to them looking like, oh, okay, you don't care about what we're doing. You don't care 
And so when I was starting to uh, let the senior managers know that, I was seeing, okay, well, we would rather make a small step than for students to think that we absolutely categorically don't care or we're complicit with different forms of oppression. And so it was about saying, what are those smaller things we can do, the quick wins, to show students we may not have the bigger structural ideas and examples of change, but we can explore the hair thing. We can get that food done easily, right? We could have forums where staff and students have these conversations. So there were often, again, in my sessions, I also talk about when we're thinking about change, we often think huge, like we have to reinvent the wheel and it has to be amazing. And that's great. But most of the time you could just say, okay, you are asking me to extend the range of products. How about I do that? How about I don't try and make a completely new concession stand? What if I just extended the range of products? What if I just did that to start? And each university will have their own version of that step one, that step two, that step three. But the step one is often not massive. And I think we run ourselves into circles thinking it needs to be big and explosive and mind-blowing. But often it's just, how can I make this group of people feel seen? How can I make this group of people feel heard? How can I make this group of people feel welcome? Not tolerated, but welcome. I think in Britain, we talk a lot about tolerance. Mm -hmm. Tolerance is the bare minimum. You know, it's not the thing that we should aspire to. How can we make them feel welcome? Recognition is the biggest thing. And so a lot of the time, the answers are already there. And we're thinking it has to be different. But often students have told you, staff have told you, people have had these conversations often for decades, right? And so when it comes to universities, I say, you don't even have to conduct the research yourself. It's been done. Largely, they're the same kinds of issues. Yeah, granted, there'll be some specific regional things, for example, or local things. But in general, there's been so much work done around the last 50 years around race and higher education, gender and higher education. You don't have to reinvent it. Just take some of the things that people have already done and do your version. That's it. And then when I say that, they're going, oh, yeah, I guess we could have done that. And I'm like, yes, because we don't have to start level 10. We could just start at level one. I'm really interested in whether you've got examples around building belonging in the academic aspect of higher education, you know, so whether that's lectures or whether that's in marking, you know, that side of the coin. What a lovely question. I've done pieces of work with lecturers where they're in a consortium, so they're not attached to one particular organization. They're from different universities. And we're having a discussion about different cultural norms and how that impacts the teaching and assessment processes. So a lot of the lecturers were talking about the fact that early in their careers, they hadn't considered the impact of cultural norms. So certain students, for example, would never look them in the eye, would never raise their hand, would never interrupt, wouldn't come to office hours. And early in their career, they perceived that to just be a a lack of care, not being proactive or conscientious enough. And through their own learning, they then understood that in some cultures, it's disrespectful, for example, to look an elder in the eye, or there's the understanding that if you are at the front as the expert, there is nothing I need to question you about. You teach, I absorb, that is my job. And so some of them were talking about how they've broken down some of those cultural norms in the teaching and and particularly in the assessment. So how to actually encourage um, students from all backgrounds to be able to 
talk to you about their essay plan, for example, or their project, their dissertation. So there have been some examples, but it seems what they were saying is it's kind of ad hoc. It will depend on you and your own interest in that and also the makeup of your course. If you happen to have a particularly diverse student body, for example, you have a more vested interest. But if you have quite a homogenous group of students, a lot of lecturers will say, well, I don't really need to do that. And so what universities are, are trying to say is that this is something that needs to be done as a blanket, whether you are teaching super diverse student populations or not, because it will benefit even the most homogenous mm-hmm. groups possible. Students have fed back on lecturers saying things like, as we all know, but if you're not born and raised in Britain, you don't know that, right? You don't know that reference. You weren't raised with that cartoon or whatever it is. That is not deliberately trying to exclude people, but that's some of the impact that people are going, oh God, I Am don't I to know, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. And so some students have said even they were born and raised here and they didn't know that. And so there is this understanding around how we're speaking, who we're expecting to be included in that we, which again speaks to othering and belonging. That there are some people who comfortably will be in that we and go, yeah, that's me. I do know that. But there'll be people who know that's definitely not me. That's, they're not talking about me in that we. And so we have examples of institutions have done a better job than others, I'd say, around decolonizing the curriculum. Some have talked about it as transforming the curriculum, inclusive curriculum, which I think are three very different processes that are being put under one banner. There are institutions like Kingston University, for example, who have led the way decolonizing the curriculum. They were some of the earliest institutions to be adopting this and and making certain changes and reducing their awarding gap. So we do see some kind of star standout moments in higher education, but it seems that it isn't as easy to translate that for various reasons. And I've been hearing from clients that there is this perception of the old institutions. You can't apply the new university ways that there's this thing of like, we're different. So we're not going to apply that for even though it's been a tried and tested and proved framework intervention or whatever it is, there is still this resistance of, but we're not that. We're red brick. We're Russell group. We're selective. We're elite. It's that divide that is sometimes stopping best practice or different or good practice from being shared. So even when we have concrete examples and case studies of institutions, other institutions are going, that's nice, but we're going to wait for our group of institutions who we think are our equals and our matches to do so. And so we do see some barriers there too. I've heard those phrases used so many times. I worked at new universities, old universities, and in my experience, they have similar problems. The difference is the way that emphasize which depends on the student body the subjects they teach their geographical locations for example why and here's the other thing that i also wanted to talk about that there is a complacency in certain institutions for example big city institutions will say you know we have a diverse population so we don't have this problem but actually when we see kind of the equivalent types of research projects so sophia ackles insider outsider report comes to mind which looked at goldsmiths and goldsmith student union It's in the heart of South London. One of the most diverse places in London has a really diverse student body, but the experiences that Black and mixed students had there were almost identical to the ones that I had at a selective and elite institution with literally less than 2% Black students. 
So even though there's this idea of we're newer, we're older, we're diverse, you're still seeing, as you said, maybe slightly different pronunciations or slightly different variations, but largely the same kinds of issues. Because again, university is a perfect microcosm of society. society. So it's still going to be really simple. And I think if that report on Goldsmiths didn't exemplify that for people in their minds, I don't know what will. Because before that report came out, I'm sure that people were like, Godsmiths, that would never happen there. It's so diverse. Or for myself, people are often very surprised when I say that for my second degree, my master's degree, I'm a Londoner. I came home to London to do my master's at SOAS and I was still the only black person on my course, right? So there's these ideas that it's going to be different here. I had a pretty much identical experience to my friends doing a master's in a university outside of London. Yeah. Almost identical. But if I would have said I did my master's at SOAS, we would have imagined it was a super diverse experience, which outside of my course it was, but inside of it, it wasn't. So there is this kind of exceptionalism that we see institutions have of, we're not that, we're different. Yeah. Doesn't happen here. There's that idea. Do you think one of the reasons why universities are sometimes slow to change is the stories they tell about themselves? So for example, when an older university encounters a new approach, they reject it culturally because if they accept that they've similar then some of the kind of stories universities tell about themselves <laughs> begin to collapse it's a great question and i'm trying not to go into my psychology bag too much here but i yes think that it damages self-concept or institutional concept of we are old we are prestigious we are this if we are listening to this new post-92 institution that we lose our own, yes, sense of superiority in some ways, our hierarchical power, our status, whatever it is. And I think if you are an institution who says, we don't want to listen to this university for these reasons, okay, but there will also be institutions that are quote-unquote similar to you. Why aren't you listening to them? I think a lot of institutions are running out of excuses in that way because so much of our conversations around widening participation, DEI, have been connected. And so there's even more opportunity to be discussing this. Most universities have got this top of mind on the agenda, for example. And so they're running out of that whole divide of these are newer institutions, they're doing it their way. But there also will be people who you consider to be your competition, for example, in your same groupings, who are also doing this. There's always... Something to learn just because you're not identical institutions doesn't mean that it's any less impressive, right? That, that most institutions surely at this point want to reduce their awarding gap. Who cares if it's a newer institution that you're taking, you know, some inspiration? Who cares? You want to reduce your awarding gap or not? That yeah. really should be the focus rather than are they identical to us? Do they understand our mechanisms, our way of being? There might be something there. Again, why are we trying to reinvent the wheel when somebody already did that? Yeah. Why don't we try and figure out what we can take? Maybe not everything will be relevant. Okay, but take a couple of things that could be and apply it to your context, apply it to your locality, whatever it is. So I think there's so much being being thrown out. So much of it is is a missed opportunity. Clearly, it's important to include underrepresented groups when discussing the student experience. And you're talking about this step one, you need to talk to people. But sometimes this means that some individuals end up representing their whole community 
what should people think about when they're doing this in terms of doing it well? Great question. So what I would say is rather than talk to people, let them talk to you. If they want to talk to you, because there are people who want to and there are people who don't. And I think that universities are in a very difficult and quite tricky place where the natural thing to do if you have an issue with a particular group or there's exclusion is to ask that group, what can I do to include you, right? That's a fairly human response. But as you said, because the numbers are super unequal, there is this expectation. And I think it, especially when it comes to students, there is a burden a lot of the time of, okay, I have to do this or I have to say this, otherwise I can't complain about things not changing. But it does place a really unfair onus on students to first go through those experiences and then find a solution for you, right? Which is why I say that a lot of the time the answers are already out there or the solutions are already out there or the discussion is already out there so much so that it's it's not always imperative to have to do your own research project. As I mentioned, very, very different institutions are coming up with really similar themes. You can almost certainly guarantee there'll be some form of microaggressions happening on campus regardless of the makeup of the students. I think we're in a loop of the research has shown us this. Let's conduct more research. I think we should stop that loop and say the research has shown us this. Let's think about if that is true for X university. If it's true for us, what might that look like? And how can we overcome that? If we take it as it's almost certain that that's going to happen, we don't actually need to come and ask students. But if we start to talk about solutions and students come to us saying that actually won't work here, that's the time for you to start listening. But I think the natural urge to want to listen to people, I think a lot of students don't have faith in that anymore because they've partaked in the research project. They've talked to their pastoral care. They've discussed it with their lecturer and they've seen no change. So I think institutions have to remember that if you don't show any change, it means that there is no confidence there is no trust and there is no faith. So even if you say, please come to this focus group and, this, and you'll get free pizza. Students don't want the free pizza that bad. They do want the free pizza, but not as they have to do something that they've already done, they've already said. So my advice to any institution is to look at your own internal data and research projects. Chances are someone did something on this. Maybe it wasn't officially noted down or they didn't publish things from it, but there's usually some form of data that's already internal. And let's start looking at that. If you don't have anything that's been done, I'd be surprised, but you know, it's not impossible. If you don't have anything that's done internally, look at some institutions that are not too far geographically from you first. The chances are if you have a very similar uh, makeup in terms of the student body and the wider city or town that you're institution is in you'll have some similar types of patterns and I think if you want to then speak to students what you can do is ask them to comment on what's already there rather than asking them to re-traumatize themselves by telling you again what's happened they can comment on what's already there some may choose not to you can respect that but in general the things that students are going to tell you will not be so dissimilar from what's already out there right? That actually, in order to ask for more research, you must first review what's already been done. That is my general advice. Review what's already out there. Familiarize yourself with the, sim with the general themes so that you're not asking people to tell you very basic things that are generally an issue because they are, again, an issue in wider society.
what you've just said got me thinking about a time when I was approached at university to review a trans naming policy. And in that instance, I was having to represent trans people as part of the wider LGBTQ plus community. It was great that I had been approached, but on reflection, pronouns, naming conventions are already a well-established body of knowledge. Yeah. So it was nice that I was thought about. The only value I was able to bring was explaining what coming out was. And talking about re-traumatization, the policy at the time was you would have to tell individual university departments if you wanted to change your pronouns and name. I had to explain that coming out was a very personal process, and that it should remain that individual's choice, and that by asking people to come out in this way, you're actually taking something that was a very personal experience and should be their choice away from them. I think universities forget that if, for example, you're a black student and you want to go to Cambridge as an example, you somehow find out what it's like to be black at Cambridge. So if I, a 17-year-old prospective black student who has applied to go to mm. Cambridge, but I just want to get that feel of what's it really going to be like, if that person can find the information, why can't you? Mm. Why can't you? Because mm. they're watching vlogs, they're watching TikToks, they're figuring it out, mm. right? And there are not very many to, to find. But if that person who's been to the open days and didn't see a black student, didn't get the chance to ask that question, is doing their own research and finding and, the, and their parents are finding ways to get a sense. If they can't find Cambridge, they'll look at Oxford, right? If they can't mm. find Oxford, they'll look at Durham, they'll look at York. They'll find all of these different parts of the internet or parts of research and, and grab from it. If individual families and parents and, and prospective students can do that, as an institution, you can't do that. You can't have a look and figure it out without having to ask those students again to tell you. Most of them record this because they know you're going to ask them again. So there'll be yeah. a TED Talk at least on it. There will be a, a YouTube blog at least one on it. There will be TikTok um, accounts dedicated to it. There'll be people answering questions about it, right? I can think of some individuals off the top of my head who, I, who I've seen. So if Black students, if LGBTQ plus students are finding ways no matter how small, to gather this information and get a sense for themselves before they buy in to go into that university, I think the university doesn't have much excuse to be able to figure that out too. I think what's really interesting is that this shifts the emphasis back towards the researcher and the idea that they need to be far more specific if they're going to carry out research. And when you think about it from a human-centered design perspective, this becomes more about researching, applying that to your practice, and presenting what you've been working on to get feedback. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and that speaks to the idea of working in the open and the importance of creating a space for staff and students to be able to come and see that work and comment if they want to. 
And what's interesting is you'll probably have most of your answers already and that opportunity to feed back creates that space for people to comment. And it's only then and only after that, you may want to consider research if you have questions that are still unanswered. Right. And then maybe somebody has come in contact with you who actually does want to speak. Mm-hmm. And then you're in a better place to have that conversation as well. Exactly. Exactly. And people are much more receptive to five things you're going to do than if you presenting them a blank page. Why am I coming up with it for you? Right. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of students talk about the fact that you're treating them as EDI consultants, but they're not being paid for that. It doesn't give them extra credit towards their degree. So they're taking out time from the main focus, which is to get the degree to help yeah. you fix a problem that they are the victim of. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it counts for nothing, right? And so that is an unreasonable ask if you zoom out all the way. It makes sense on the human problem-solving level of, I'm just going to ask them what they want, right? That makes sense. But if we zoom out, they're not here to do that. They're not here to solve the issue of racism on campus or the issue of transphobia on campus or uh, homophobia on campus or ableism. That's actually not what they're here to do. Mm. They can maybe comment on some of your ideas if they're feeling gracious. But if they're not... You're going to have to do it because even if you find someone who's amazing and wants to do that and is happy to to join you on that journey, mm. they're here to three, for three to four years. What happens after that? We have to actually be sustainable for ourselves and sufficient mm. in finding solutions without leaning so heavily on students to be able to voice that and to find the solutions. They can't always do that. So it makes more sense to me in the long run for you to be self-sufficient as an organization or as an institution because they're not your employees, right? Mm. They're they're not here to do that. If they're doing it, I think they should be paid if you're asking them to consult on that level. If they're not and they're just doing this because they care and they're passionate, you're lucky, but they cannot be expected to come up with all of it. It's just not something that's reasonable. And as you said in your original question, Rich, People cannot speak for their entire race. I am one black woman. Mm. One. What I think Mm. is what I think. What someone else thinks is what someone else thinks. Even in my sessions, I talk about the fact that I have colleagues who have the exact same background as me and we describe ourselves very differently. So if we cannot share the same idea or concept of who we are, it's impossible to get something. And that's another thing, actually, that I should have said earlier. I think that universities, and it leads us into uh, conversations around language. I think there's so much anxiety about having like a perfect term. I'm sorry to the listeners. We will never get to a point as a human race where one term will unite everybody other than human, right? Other than that, it's going to be really hard to get Millions of people to agree on a term that reflects me, that reflects you. So Mm. the best thing that you can do rather than worry about, is it this, is it that, is to check with that individual. It's not rocket science, but that's the best thing. So rather than get stuck on, I don't know if I should use this term. I don't know if I should use this term. Is this in? Is this out? I see a lot of institutions get stuck that way. Should we describe them as students of color? Should we use BAME anymore? Should we do this? Should we do that? You know, as people are going to give you some grace with it, it's a complicated thing. There isn't going to be a perfect term. I wish there was. I think it would move us forward. Most students say, I don't particularly care as long as the change comes. Yeah. Right. You can figure out that bit afterwards, but like, is it actually going to impact me? Because having a long discussion about language is one thing, but they want to see the next 
step that comes with that. And I think what's really been interesting, what you've spoken to is actually um, a promise in some respects has been broken yeah. because we have overburdened certain parts of the student population to expect them to represent groups of people. And like you said, impossible. Impossible. <laughs> And if you accept that, you have to learn from that. And one of the things that I used to get very energized about was let's stop doing focus groups. We keep on asking the students the same questions and expecting a different answer. We need to be much more focused if we are going to do any type of research. And I think what's been really lovely about the conversation so far has been the recognition, the responsibility lies with you. Mm -hmm. It does. And and that's tough, right? Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be nice if someone else could do this, I'm sure. But yeah, you are just disillusioning students. That's what's happening over time. And so the more you do the focus group, the more you do the research project, then the less and less students are going to want to even be part of that. So for myself, when I was doing my PhD research, a lot of the uh, student particip participants said, the only reason I'm here is because I saw your face in the advert. That's the only reason I'm here, because I've already done the focus group with widening participation unit. I've already done the focus group with the EDI tool. I've done this. So here now I'm just here to talk to another black person. Yeah. And I'm here to be in a focus group with just black people, with a black moderator, with a black interviewer. That's why I'm here. The more you're using this, the more you're expecting students to speak, the less and less they want to do that. And so the thing that I also see with universities as clients is that you are having to more heavily incentivize now because students are going, well, I'm not doing this for free. Yeah. I'm not doing another focus group. I'm not giving you another hour and a half, two hours of my time because it doesn't lead to anything. It doesn't go anywhere. And so the focus has to be on the action rather than seeing the focus group as the doing. It's not the doing of it, right? It has to be, yeah. it has to be that, that followed up with something. Otherwise students are like, this is a waste of my time and I don't want to do it anymore. What do you think the biggest diversity, equality and inclusion challenges universities will face in the next two to three years? Ooh. What a lovely question. I think that there's going to be a continued pushback against these kinds of conversations, right? So we saw the pushback in the UK and the US around critical race being taught at all. I think we're going to just continue seeing that. I think we're going to see a lot of anxiety from institutions about how to hold space for both. They don't want to be seen as being, quote, to work. They don't want to be seen as censoring particular political beliefs. They don't want to be seen as ignoring marginalized students. And so I think that this anxiety is going to continue, going to be even more difficult for universities to reconcile. Where are we in this debate? Where are we in this conversation? Where do we position ourselves? So I think it's going to be more um, cerebral conversations internally that students are then going to start to say, we've actually had it now. That's it. We've given you enough time. We've given you three years post BLM. Nothing actually has changed. And I think it's going to be really difficult for universities to know what the step one is, because now you're balancing so many more voices. It's not just about talking to marginalized students. It's about talking to uh, students who 
for the most part are normative, but feel that they are being marginalized. Um, and so I think you're coming to hold those two things in the same place and universities, I think, are going to find it difficult to know what the next step is in being able to have both groups feel heard, both groups feel that they've expressed themselves and how to respond to backlash on both sides, which is not the most optimistic no, right. <laughs> to end no. on, but that I think is what everybody can see happening of where do we go from here to allow space for everybody to feel heard, but without people feeling like they're being dehumanized, which I guess brings back to what we said in the beginning, that this is about humanity. This is about people wanting to be seen and, and recognized. And I think universities are going to have to be quite creative in how do you do that? Because I don't even know if I can answer that uh, question uh, off the top of my head, but I think that it's an important one to see now because I don't think people are going to get quieter. I think it's going to be louder over the next few years. So I think if all the things we said about in anxiety and the, and the need to jump is now, <laughs> jump and fail now so that when the next couple of years, it won't feel as bad. So I think it's actually, it is a bit like full circle optimism, which is jump now, figure out the rest of the because if it's hard to jump now, it'll be harder to jump then. What you're describing is effectively polarization. So yes, polarization that doesn't move anybody forward. What you see in the digital space, designing for inclusion, is when you solve a specific problem for somebody with a disability, mm -hmm. or you take into account a difference. The benefit everybody is much greater. I, I agree with your assessment. Is we're so far away from that thinking how do universities reconcile that because yeah in that process what scares me is the fact that if we start to fragment in some mm -hmm. respects then the big problems we need to solve are not going to be solved yeah honestly i think that's the thing and i i really wish if i had a magic wand to impart like a piece of knowledge or idea it's exactly that that this hasn't got negative implications for anyone. The movement towards inclusion is not to exclude you, right? It benefits everybody and just getting that across to people can feel really hard because there's this scarcity idea that there's not enough for everyone. And so if you get a piece of pizza, I don't get a piece of pizza. There's not enough pizza, right? When actually guys, there's enough slices, there are. So it's okay. It doesn't mean that we take those one hand and give with the other everybody will be able to move forward but trying to get people to be open to the idea of it that you could benefit from something that wasn't necessarily designed for you is a tricky one and it's a large part of what my job is i would say in today's climate is getting people to see that it's not that you don't have enough slices it's like there's more than enough actually and if you trust it You'd see that it actually has way more benefits and will benefit you hugely, just like we saw with the pandemic that disabled rights activists had been campaigning for all of these benefits that would have impacted all of us for years. Mm -hmm. And overnight, we got to see that. Imagine if we would have listened 10 years ago, that you could not work from home, that you had to be near all of these things that disabled rights activists said, I swear to you, if you believe me. We can be just as productive. We've got to see that. And, and it's a difficult thing to get people to see without it quite literally happening overnight. I think it's an exercise in, in trust and belief and faith. And I think people don't have 
as much faith in each other at the moment. It feels very difficult to get that. But in my sessions, it happens. I do see people, but it takes a while for people to just accept that there's enough pizza, guys. It comes back to a very human thing that you just said. <laughs> faith and belief. Yeah. We can past ourselves and we can move forward. We can. I wouldn't do my job if I didn't believe that, truly. So I, lo- I love to end on an optimistic note because I truly do my job because I believe it's possible at some point. I really hope people can find some peace in that because I know it's hard to feel that every day. But I think it's yeah. absolutely possible. If you're interested in improving diversity, equity and inclusion practices, are there any courses or books you'd recommend or people mm. that you'd maybe want to listen to on podcasts? I'll start with what I listen to. I don't listen to things that are strictly DEI stuff. I look at things on the human levels. That is not to say that EDEI or diversity, equity, inclusion isn't human. It's of course about humans. But I find that when we talk about it specifically as DEI, people go, oh, that's not for me. That's about people of colour. That's about women. That's about the LGBTQ community. That's not about me. It's always about someone else. So I find that that language is really important. But I'm not trying to divorce the two. They are the same thing. They go hand in hand. So I listen to We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon Doyle. I highly recommend the book Untamed. It's not directly about DEI, but I think it can really help people to understand things in a, in a different way. Kind of like the Barbie movie tries to do that. So no spoilers for that. Paradigm Shift with I Understood. I've just started to listen to, which is really good. She talks about exactly what we were talking about, which is reimagining. Reimagining the world, reimagining things, reimagining concepts, which I think is really helpful. I think that type of content really helps us to be, as I said, what I think universities need to be, which is creative thinking in a way that's trying to do something uh, a little different. I know that a lot of people like um, the big hitter, so your Rennie Edo Lodges in the last few weeks, launched my website, my own personal website. DrLatishaOsborne.co.uk. I'm sure Rich Squared will put this in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But it's just a place where I'm able to introduce myself and to talk about some of the things that I offer. So some of the services that I do, which include unconscious bias training, EDI training, leadership training, and also a course called Choosing to Challenge. So for anybody who wants to put some of the things that we've discussed in into practice, into uh, action. I'd highly, uh, of course, request myself. If I have to back myself, uh, I really enjoy choosing to challenge because so many of us have had those moments where we've either been on the receiving end or we've been a bystander when something inappropriate or offensive or upsetting uh, is said and we haven't responded how we wanted to in that moment. And we've had that relatable 2 a.m. moment where you think, oh, if only I would have just said this. Or the next day you think, oh, if only I would have said this thing or done this thing. And we kind of think about it for ages. And so uh, I've developed this course where we talk through some strategies, some things that we can keep in our back pocket, up our sleeves for those moments. Because it isn't always easy for us to be able to challenge something. But there are some things that we can do. And there are some techniques that we can combine. So if we don't have the words in the moment, that doesn't mean that it's too late. It means that the next day we can have that conversation the next day or the next week even. I've had things 
personally where I've had a conversation months after it's happened because it doesn't leave you right that feeling doesn't leave you and a lot of the time it if it goes unchallenged for a long time it means that it becomes part of that culture so choosing to challenge is that I have more about my services on my website again drnatishaosborne.co.uk courses I think I'm just moving into the very human level things because it helps in my general life. I'm now a Hogan practitioner, Hogan tester, essentially, a, well, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's the easiest way I can explain it. It's like a fancy personality test that you do. You get a report which has three different scales. The first one is your bright side. So think about yourself on a first date, putting your best foot forward, yourself monitoring. You are the best version of you in that moment. That shows me all the different scales where you flourish. The next one is the dark side, which is you on your most stressful day. Like nothing is going right. You are super, super stressed. You are just about hanging on. That shows us where certain parts of your personality come up there. And then your final one is your motivations. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What drives you? What keeps you going? And then essentially you, you take the test. You get that and I essentially give you an hour to an hour and a half of a feedback session, which I really love doing. You get to learn all about yourself, uh, which for some people is amazing. For some people, it's terrifying. So you decide (laughs) which kind of person you are there, but I really enjoy those sessions. It's also the second scale is called the one that makes grown men cry. I haven't had that happen in my sessions, but if anyone wants to put that to the test, I'm always up for it. But yeah, really valuable thing. It really shows you where you flourish, some of the ways that it essentially tells you rather than who you are, it tells you how people closest to you view you, which is a really valuable piece of information. Um, And I've had to do it myself and it's very eye-opening. I would say for the most part, you're not 100% like, oh God, I'm a horrible person, but you are like, that's really interesting. Maybe there's something going on there. So I'd recommend stuff like that just to give you more insight into yourself general things around EDI, if there are things that you feel nervous about, anxious about, any of the things that we've mentioned, if you're experiencing a freeze response, book me. I promise you, I will not judge you. I've had a lot of things over my career. (laughs) As long as you're not trying to heckle me, which I've had happen many times. Yeah, I have had hecklers, but they're a very small number of people. So for the most part, I'm trying to create a judgment-free zone where you can get things wrong. And very, very, very few times in life do you get a space where you can jump and fail. So that is my general practice and how I did it for my sessions. So I have to recommend myself. (laughs) Finally, a question we ask everyone. What would be the one thing your future self would tell your past self? My first thought is to relax, (laughs) to take things slower, that you have so much more time than you think you do, and you're doing way better than you think. It's just easing to things, to enjoy things, to stop and smell the roses every now and then, you know, that there's time for accomplishments, but there's also time for the beauty of things. Oh, I love that answer. Thank you. Thank you. I think we need to clearly go to the pub. I think there's so much more we have to discuss. (laughs) That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Dr. Letitia Osborne. We have learned so much. And thank you for listening to Designing for Students.
Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We have some incredible guests lined up who will continue to inspire you. If you have any suggestions, topics you'd like us to cover, or guests you'd love to hear from, please reach out. We value your feedback and we want to create content that you love. Thank you all for listening and remember you can change the world.